Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church, and we're going to cover our Sunday School lesson for July 25th of 2021. And um, I know I say this every week, but every week it's like, wow, we're getting further and further and further into this uh, year of 2021. It's To me, it seems to be going by fast, and um, that could be a good thing, that can be a bad thing, can't it? But uh, as we look through this, we are going to ask a question today in our study of the New City Catechism, things we need to look at. Uh, it addresses a particular problem even in Baptist life. Now, it's not anything that I ever anticipated. I thought if there was anything that we would stay firm on, it would be this. But um, the research and a lot of the uh, studies that are taking place show that there's kind of, uh, the Baptist messenger called it one time a creeping universalism into uh, our churches. Not just Baptist churches, but... Um, particularly in Baptist churches. And the fact that it's creeping into other denominations doesn't make me feel good either. It's just rank heresy and um, just a sad, sad situation. So what is the question that we're looking at today? Are all people, just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? Are all people, just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ. Who would believe that? You would be surprised. And how many people think that, you know, when it's all said and done, everybody's going to go to heaven, except, you know, maybe Hitler or uh, somebody like that. Of course, you know, you need a help or people like that. But, uh, you know, you ask them in a Sunday school class or something, what about uh, your neighbor? Oh, man, my neighbor is a great guy. He brought me tomatoes. And uh, he mowed my grass when I was on vacation. Surely he's not going to go to hell. And so we rationalize things and we try to make people uh, better than they are. We deny the doctrine of total depravity or total inability. And uh, we think that for somebody to be totally depraved, they have to be really, really, really bad. Well, total depravity doesn't mean that all sinners are as bad as they could be. And that's a, a very important thing to understand, as they could be. Every sinner has the capability of being the worst. However, most of us restrain ourselves for various reasons. And... Um, that does not make you righteous, though. The idea of being righteous means that you have to be perfect. And you and I have not attained that and cannot attain that, and neither can anyone else. Jesus Christ is the only one who did that. And that's why it's important that if we're going to go to heaven, we've got to have his righteousness. And that's exactly what he gives us. The uh, answer in the uh, catechism is no, only those who are elected by God and united to Christ by faith. Nevertheless, God in his mercy demonstrates common grace even to those who aren't elect by restraining the effects of sin and enabling works of culture, 
for human well-being. Um, common grace. What in the world are we talking about at that? Sometimes I think we kind of get the idea you either under grace or you're not, but there are different types of grace. And common grace is not saving grace. It's the kind of grace that is extended by God to every person on the planet, whether they're lost or saved. Um, this is what it means when the Bible says, for he makes it to rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, when God sends rain to uh, help crops and to help farmers, it doesn't just fall on the believers' farms, does it? God gives rain even to non-believers. When we think about uh, the way society should function, there are some bad laws out there. We, we know that. But there are also a lot of very, very good laws and these very good laws give law and order, protection, all of that type of stuff to good people as well as to the criminal. And uh, this is one of the things that criminals try to take advantage of. Uh, when my dad worked in the prison system, he said the ACLU was all criminals love us. But even the ACLU, you know, sometimes as liberal as they are, Sometimes they line up on the right side and even protect conservatives. When you think about the Constitution and the First Amendment, freedom of speech and freedom of religion, uh, common grace is given even through that because even the blasphemer, even the person who teaches false doctrine is protected under the First Amendment, aren't they? Freedom of religion, not everybody who meets on a Sunday morning is preaching, teaching, and believing and propagating the truth. There are some cults out there that meet at the same time we do, and yet everything that they say is perverse and wrong and unscriptural, and it's just, um, you know, heresy. And yet they are given the right to do that. That's a form of common grace. And not only that, but it goes even further. Here's a person who is lost and a person who is never going to trust Christ. Okay? Never going to trust Christ. We saw um, in other lessons that we had, what is their destiny? And they are headed to the lake of fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. Let's say this person, this lost person who is never going to get saved, lives to be 120 years old. You know what that is? Common grace. Why would that be common grace? Oh, they may have a hard life, and they may reap what they sow, even in this life, but the 120 years that they live on this earth, even without Christ, is 120 years they're not going to have to be in the lake of fire, in hell. And so God is kind and he is good. And, uh, you know, lost people, they have marriages that last 50 years or more. Lost people get the benefit of air conditioning and heating. Lost people get to uh, eat of the crops of the farmers. Uh, this is all called common grace. And that's what they're making reference to here. Now, common grace won't take you to heaven, but uh, God does show 
some grace and favor, some kindness, even to the lost while they're here on earth, which is why we need to remember, too, that we should display compassion and kindness to lost people. Sometimes they act like lost people and we get surprised. Why should we ever be surprised when lost people act depraved? When they act, after all, you do too. And there are some times when I were, if I were to see you at a given moment in time, I would maybe think that you're lost because you look just like a lost person. And we could even put you side by side with a lost person. And the lost person might even be a little bit nicer and a little bit restrained. I've seen Christians lose their temper. Done it myself, haven't you? Seen Christians act ungodly. Haven't you? Done it myself. Guilty as charged. But it's a temporary thing when we do it. And the Holy Spirit, who is always with us, convicts us of our sin, and we confess it, and we repent and uh, forsake that sin. And that's what's different about us than, of course, the lost person. And as we think about the restraining grace, the benefit, ben, uh, benef- the grace that is beneficiary, I can say it, um, it is on everybody to some degree, to some degree. It's not like we look around and we say, uh, only Christian people have good health. It's not true. In fact, some people that are Christians have worse health than some of their lost family members. It's not only true that Christians have wealth. Some do. But the truth of the matter is, there are lost people, and probably a lot of them, who amass greater wealth and influence than you and I ever will, maybe even put together. And that was true in the Bible times. You remember how many times in the Psalms does it say, why do the heathen prosper? It's kind of a dilemma. Well, our day's coming, and uh, that's going to be in heaven in the final state. We're going to have everything we've ever dreamed of and desired, and uh, the lost people are going to lose everything and suffer immeasurably in hell. It's just a matter of time. So common grace, think about that. But that is not saving grace. Never, ever, ever uh, confuse the two. If God is a loving God, then how could he ever send anybody to hell, people may ask. And some people just deny the fact. I don't believe that God does send people to hell. Well, let's look at our scripture before we um, move on in all of this. And it's Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so um, when we think about what God has done for us, and we uh, think about Jesus and his death and his forgiveness. And as this verse tells us here in this translation, where we receive the free gift of righteousness. And it's not our righteousness, but it's the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, doesn't that somehow extend to everyone? If, if it really is finished and Christ paid for sins, doesn't that mean then that, you know, everybody would be saved? Well, that's what some people think. 
In fact, um, a man named Kirby Godsey, who was president of Houston Baptist, Baptist University, funded by the cooperative program, and this is 30 years ago. I don't think he's still, I'm uh, not even sure he's still alive. But uh, he made the statement in an address to the student body that our mission as Christians is not to tell people how to be saved, but to tell them they are saved. In other words, people who have never heard of Christ are just as saved as you and I are. They just don't know it. And our mission is to go around and tell them that they are saved so they can quit worrying about it and they can quit worshiping false gods and they can rest in what Christ has done for them. Well, that last part, I would love to preach the gospel to them and to see them come to know Christ as Lord and Savior and rest in what Christ has done and um, turn away from idols. That, of course, would be the most wonderful thing in the world. But that's not what um, he meant. He meant that as they are still worshiping idols, their problem is they're just ignorant. And if we do only tell them, then they would know that they are saved. Uh, I think more people believe that than you and I probably understand or would like to admit. And so uh, this is something that we need to cover and we need to talk about. And point number one is simply this universalism is not biblical. You cannot find it in the scripture without doing violence to the scripture and twisting the scripture. Now, you may be able to take one verse here and there out of context and uh, twist it so that it seems to be saying that, but you can't take the Bible as a whole and come to that conclusion. I want you to turn to Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And if this doesn't kind of send chills up and down your spine, if this doesn't make you um, a little bit sad, then I wonder if you have any compassion in you at all. This is truth. This is God describing to us what is going to happen to every person who does not repent and believe the gospel. Verse 15. I mean, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them, no place to hide, in other words. And I saw the dead, great and small, powerful and weak, um, kings as well as peasants, that kind of thing is what that means, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades, or hell, gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name, whether they're small or whether they're great, no advantage here, right? If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, this is reality. This is uh, not some, some theologian's idea. This is not something that some preacher concocted. Uh, when I went to see my pulmonologist, um, he came in and he said, so you're a preacher, huh? And I said, yes, sir, I sure am. And he goes, what kind of preacher? And I said, I'm a Baptist preacher. And he goes, well, there's your problem. Your lungs are so full of hellfire and damnation, brimstone. And, uh, you know, we kind of laughed. You know, you have to. And um, that's what a lot of people kind of think, that maybe this is just a Baptist doctrine or something like that. And the truth of the matter is we don't own this doctrine, but we recognize it to be true. This is John writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about what's going to happen in the future. And if you can imagine being called to stand before the great white throne of the Lord Jesus. How powerful is he? How intimidating is he? Well, it's pretty intimidating when um, the earth flees and can't find any place to hide from the all-seeing, discriminating, powerful, all-discerning gaze of the judge. Who is the judge sitting on the throne? Well, Jesus told us before he was crucified that the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. This is Christ, sitting on his throne, the great white throne. This is not a welcoming situation. This is not a situation of compassion. This is not a situation of mercy. This is a situation of dead people being called up in a type of resurrection from wherever they may be. If they're in hell, if their bodies are in the sea, whatever, it doesn't matter. They're all called up. Doesn't matter what people think of them. We may look and say, oh, he was a great and good man. They're called before this throne. Doesn't matter if we look at somebody and we look at them as a nobody, as somebody who doesn't count, as somebody who is a nothing. Um, kind of like the Beatles sang back in the 60s. He's a real nowhere man. We, we see a lot of people like that. They're just kind of like scotch tape. They're just transparent. They're invisible. And we don't notice them. Well, God notices. And he calls them to stand before him. And then he talks about the judgment. Now, I can remember uh, a time when I would read this and it was kind of confusing because all I had heard all of my life, I mean, I was raised in church, is that you're saved by what Christ did and you're not saved by works. And, you know, we memorize the verse, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And yet, when you read in Revelation, and uh, you read this, uh, these verses 11 through 15 in this chapter, it actually says they're judged by what they had done. Well, when I, how does that, that, I mean, you know, does not compute kind of comes to mind. How does that work? I want you to think about every lost person that you know. And when you witness to them, 
they always have a reason for not accepting Christ as their Lord and Savior, not repenting of their sin. And what is it? Their works. They think that they are okay. They're good enough. I'll take my chances, one person told me. Why? Because you think the odds are in your favor. And that's the way lost people are. They may be very religious. They may have prayed a prayer at camp or VBS or something one time. They may uh, be charitable and they give money to the, you know, to the Red Cross and things like that. They may be a very good neighbor. They may be the one that brings you the tomatoes and mows your lawn when you're on vacation, as we mentioned. I mean, any number of things they can bring up to say, I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay. Now, they may be the rank infidel who says, I don't believe any of that, but I find that there are very few of, of those. I think they're increasing, but very few of those. Most people that I talk to will give me the benefit of the doubt and listen. They're usually not rude. They listen. They just don't think that they need what I'm saying. And a lot of times I'll frame it like this. Whenever I in the past have gone to people and said something like this, I'm here to tell you about Jesus, they get a little testy and offended and sometimes just tell you flat out no. I ask a cab driver in India after hearing his story and hearing about the gods and goddesses he believed in, I said, well, um, may I tell you how uh, I received eternal life? And he just said, no. And, uh, you know, what do you do? What do you do? But most of the time, if I am talking to somebody, and instead of saying, can I tell you how you can be saved? Uh, the conviction is not my job, and selling this is not my job, and neither is it yours. But when I ask them, can I tell you how I came to know that I have eternal life? I mean, nine times out of ten, or virtually a lot more than that, they say yes. And it gives me the freedom to share my story. And I tell them about the good news of Christ. I tell them about my sin. I tell them about the forgiveness that had been offered to me on the cross. And then I might ask them, what do you think about that? And sometimes they say, I think that's good for you, and I'm glad you have something to hold on to. Are you interested in that? No, I think I'm fine. I'll take my chances. I go to church every week. I pay my taxes. I'm a good neighbor, whatever. And they uh, kind of dismiss it. Well, this, what we were reading about in here, is something they're not going to be able to dismiss. Because all of their so-called good works are going to be put on display and shown for what they really are. Not acts of kindness, not acts of righteousness, but activities of selfishness because they did it for an ulterior motive. They did it for themselves. They did it um, for what other people thought. Remember all those things Jesus said about the Pharisees, and they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire because they do not have the righteousness of Christ. And so their works recorded in the books, plural, condemn them. And then the book, the book of life is open and their name is not found in it. And so they are cast into hell. And scripture is clear that only the saved go to heaven. 
and no one deserves salvation, that it is a gift of grace, unmerited favor. Okay, we got to hurry. Number two, Jesus is the only way. Think about Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Clear enough. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So salvation only comes through Christ, of course, and there are no alternative ways. Some people think there are many paths to the cross, many paths. Well, there are many paths to the cross. We all, um, you know, come from different backgrounds and situations. But uh, the cross is the only way to God the Father and salvation. Jesus is the only way in the payment for sin. Okay? Number three, we are commanded to evangelize. I'm going to read a verse that is so familiar, you almost want to yawn when you read it, but don't, please. Turn to Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is the Great Commission? Well, it's what we just read. And the Great Commission is not just for preachers, not just for missionaries, not just for evangelists and those kind of people. It's for all of us. And it's been passed on to us, and we are to be faithful in carrying out this commission. And notice that the commission is not just go and get as many people saved as you can. Get them to pray this prayer or repeat this prayer. A parrot could do that, and they don't go to heaven. And a lot of people are repeating a prayer they don't understand, and a prayer that they don't really mean and they don't really believe, and they wonder why nothing changes in their life. We are to, the Great Commission says, go into all the world, and we are to... Um, preach the gospel, aren't we? We're to make disciples. How do you make a disciple? Well, you start off by giving them the gospel. Christ died on the cross for our sin. God's wrath for our sin was placed upon Jesus. Jesus paid for it in full, died, then he was buried, and then he rose from the dead. And if you'll believe that and submit to him as Lord and turn from trusting in yourself or anything else, call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. And then they become a disciple. A disciple is not a special class of Christian. All Christians are disciples. And so then what are we supposed to do? We baptize them, not before they're saved, not when they're babies, but after they're saved. It's very clear here. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's why we insist on that whenever people baptize here. And then we've got to teach them to observe what I have commanded you. You see, you're not really fulfilling the Great Commission if you don't teach them. And so Bible teaching and preaching like we do on Sundays here and like we do in our Sunday school, that's all a part of discipleship. Discipleship is not some special program with a notebook and a one-on-one thing. It can be, and that can be helpful, but that's not the only way to make a disciple. 
We are teaching every Sunday, teaching you to observe all things that Christ has commanded. That's part of it. Just as much as winning them to Christ, teaching believers to live for Jesus and according to his commands is just as much. This is evangelism. We are to be burdened. We are to know that this is our assignment. And we are to know that Christ is with us always whenever we do this. Second Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore we are, and notice that's plural, not I am, but we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so God saves people through our witness and God saves people using us for his glory. Whatever part we're going to play in this, um, we don't all have the same opportunities. We don't all have the same spiritual gifts. We don't all have the same knowledge. A brand new baby Christian uh, is not going to know as much as you do, for example. And so that means you ought to be 10 times the witness a baby Christian is. But sadly, so many times they outdo us. And we're accountable for spreading the word, not the results. Because we can't make anything happen, which brings us into this fourth point. The glory goes to God alone. What do I mean by that? As we are thinking about universalism not being biblical, certainly true. And it ought to startle us that people that we love are going to hell apart from Christ. We need to be convinced of point number two, that Jesus is the only way, not a way, not even the best way to go to heaven. He's the only way to go to heaven. And anybody who is not in Christ is going to hell, as we read about. That ought to shock us, frighten us, concern us, burden us for everybody that we're around, that it does not know Christ. And then as we evangelize, you know, we tend to really, really trump up those people who lead people to Christ. Man, they're a soul winner. Well, you know, technically, and I've used that term before, technically they're not. The only person who wins souls is the Holy Spirit, right? And in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 3, verses 6 and 7, Paul makes this statement. This is Paul now, you know, premier apostle Paul. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Did you catch that? Anything. But only God who gives the growth. You know, we all play a part in the plan of God. And you may show up at planting time. And, uh, you know, Billy Graham gets a whole lot more publicity than you do because he got to be in on the harvest. Well, let me tell you, that won't hold up in heaven because you handing out tracts, giving glory to God, looking for open doors to witness, taking them when they come up and talking about Jesus, you may never see a person saved. Now, I tend to think the more you witness, the more you probably will. But let's say you never see anyone saved, but you're faithful. Let's say that you're the person with the watering can, that you go and you follow up on people, <coughs> you uh, talk to people, and you encourage them 
to get right with God. Now, whether they do or not, that's really not your problem, but you poured the water on the planted seeds. And then along at the right time comes the harvester, and he reaps the harvest. And I mean, his baskets are full of fruit, and he is just rejoicing, and we rejoice with him or her. But the thing that we need to realize is they're not a hero of the faith any more than the one who planted, any more than the one who watered. In fact, according to what Paul says, they're not anything. They're not anything. You can't make the seed grow. You can put it in the ground and you can water it, but you can't make it grow. Listen, I can testify of that. I've had some places where I've planted grass and did all of the right things and it just, some of it grew and some of it didn't. Why? I don't control that. I don't control that. And so it's God who gives the growth or the increase, some translations say. So the glory needs to go to him. And maybe that's one of the reasons Southern Baptists aren't baptizing like they have in the past. Maybe it's because we gave the glory to man. <clears throat> we gave the glory to preachers and evangelists. We gave the glory to individuals in our church instead of giving the glory to God. And maybe we're not as motivated because we think that what we do doesn't matter. Well, I tried. Nobody got saved. God must not be with me. No, Jesus promised he would be with you to the end of the age. Sometimes we don't have the same opportunity that someone else comes. If I come to somebody and just the ground has barely been plowed in their life and I plant the seeds, God's seeds rarely, if ever, spring up and bear fruit immediately, do they? They've got to be planted. Then they've got to be watered. In other words, T-I-M-E has to pass. And then the harvest comes in. And um, when we think about all of that, maybe if you don't come in at harvest time, maybe that's why you don't get to reap the harvest. It's not your job. It's not your calling. But if you're always there to water or always there to plant, and you're faithful in that, let me assure you, when you get to heaven, you're going to be rewarded for that, maybe in greater ways than the harvester is easy to harvest, you can see it. When we had a big garden growing up, I knew when the corn was ready. I knew when the tomatoes were ready. Watermelons, I'm not sure anybody knows. But uh, we would dig potatoes and all of those kind of things. We knew that was easy. But sometimes when uh, the seeds are just sprouting and you look at them and there's some weeds in there and you uh, take a, a hoe and you begin to work on getting those weeds out, and then your dad stops you, stop, you're getting some of the corn too. A little harder, a little harder. Sometimes when you are hoeing out there and it's hot and you're thirsty and the ground is really, really hard, it's hard work. Harvest is easy. Sometimes taking care of the crop is even harder. If you don't have a good water supply and you have to carry water out by the bucket or something like that, that's hard work. And you don't see any real results other than a little bit of mud. But you don't always see it right away. But the harvester, I mean, he goes out there and he looks. Sure enough, it's ripe. He pulls it off. He puts it in his basket and he just keeps doing that. And I'm not saying harvesting is not hard work. But 
it's a little bit different than the others and you get some instant results. And some of you have given up and you're struggling because you haven't seen instant results. Well, let me tell you, God is with you and you are an ambassador for Christ and you are the one who either plants or waters or reaps a harvest and it's God who gives the increase and gets the glory. And with different gifts come different opportunities. We have different situations. And so uh, we do this and whatever role we play is nothing. It's not really the big deal unless God <coughs> gives the growth and the glory goes to him. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's remember this and we'll be done. Universalism is unbiblical. Jesus indeed is the only way. Don't ever back down from that. <coughs> and we are commanded and accountable to evangelize. Share the good news of Christ. Find a way to do it. Be intentional about it. And then understand that the glory when people get saved only goes to the Lord. Only to the Lord. Leave the results in his hand. So thank you for your time. Those of you who are teachers listening to this by audio, preparing for your lesson. I hope it's helped you. And I hope it gives you some idea of what I was thinking when I wrote this so that you can translate that into the language that your class speaks. Obviously, I'm using a metaphor. And I am praying that God will anoint you and bless you. And wouldn't it be great as a result of this lesson if somebody in your Sunday school class led somebody to the Lord this next week? That would be great. But you know what? I would be happy and I think the Lord would be pleased if even if we didn't see anybody saved through all of this, all of a sudden everybody in our classes are planting seeds and watering seeds. And to God be the glory for the increase. So thank you for that. And if you're watching this because you missed on, uh, this pat on, on Sunday when this is presented and you want to keep up with everybody, thank you for doing that. And may the Lord bless you. And we pray that things will be back in order where you can rejoin your class. Okay, I've taken up enough of your time. I appreciate you listening once again. God bless you and thank you for all you do.